Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Monday, July 10th. Amazon Studios has gotten a bunch of shit lately in the media and around Hollywood for spending a lot of money on shows and movies, not having a ton of rating success to show for it, at least not by traditional measurement, like Nielsen, where shows rarely chart, despite more than 200 million Prime customers having access to Prime Video, more than 150 million of them in the U.S., about double Netflix in this country. Think about that. Now, obviously, people subscribe to Prime primarily for free shipping, not the new season of Jack Ryan. But that's always been a cover, in my opinion, meaning it's always been kind of murky. Who is actually watching shows on Amazon? What Amazon actually gets out of its Hollywood initiative, where it spends about $7 billion a year on content, everything from series like The Lord of the Rings show to Daisy and the Six to The Peripheral to the ultra pricey show Citadel from the Russo brothers, which has become sort of a punching bag in town because it cost about $50 million an episode for its first season. Didn't even chart. It's also got Thursday Night Football and movies like Air. Now the MGM titles, which it bought for $8.5 billion. A lot of money. So is it working? After all, it doesn't matter as much how many people are watching Prime Video if the ones who do watch buy a bunch more toilet paper on Amazon and stay in that Prime ecosystem. The shows presumably help grow the retail service worldwide. Still, there's got to be a limit on the spending, right? Especially these days, as Amazon and other companies are laying off thousands of employees and limiting investments. Our buddy Lucas Shaw reported last week that Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon up in Seattle, has asked the LA executives for detailed budget analyses of some of their biggest shows. Not great news for Mike Hopkins and Jen Salky and the Amazon Studios team, who are presumably under the microscope in a way that they weren't even a few months ago. Then again, the entire Hollywood ecosystem is pulling back, spending less, as we talk about on this show, being more cautious in the wake of the great Netflix correction and the slowdown in streaming growth. But it begs the question, is Amazon Studios actually doing what it's supposed to do? And is there a chance that Andy Jassy could decide that it isn't worth it to try to compete with Netflix and the rest? The implications of that would be huge. So we've got Lucas in here today to discuss. Today, it's Amazon Studios. Is it actually working? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Great to be here. I, we're, we're now in my, my third location in the last three weeks, I think. Do I want to know where you are? I'm just in New York. 
Oh, I thought it was going to make me jealous, like you were in the south of France or Spain or something. All right. So let's talk about Amazon Studios. For a company that is worth $1.3 trillion and has annual revenue more than $500 billion, why does Andy Jassy care about how the $7 billion that Amazon spends on original content every year is spent? Well, there's the broader Amazon answer to that, and then there's the studio-specific answer. The broader Amazon answer, or really the broader economic answer, is that Amazon, like so many other companies, is just paying more attention to how much money it spends and what its profits are, because it's being pressured by investors and scrutinized by Wall Street to be profitable. I mean, Amazon sort of one of the leading examples of a company that for the longest time, and probably still to this point, has sort of not worried about profits at the expense of gaining market share and growing. And that's why it still makes a lot of its money from its cloud business as opposed to the, you know, the retail and the selling business that we all we all know it for. So Amazon, you know, Amazon's firing tens of thousands of workers. Uh, it's shutting down dozens of projects that it feels are sort of not core. And the studios is, you know, an interesting division of the company because on the one hand, it's not core. It's not the retail business. It's not the cloud business. But it is a key proposition of Prime, which is in itself a key part of retail because that's they say that Prime customers shop more. And I think they're just looking at the performance of the studio and saying, you know, we've got some hits. It's not a total disaster, but you're spending a lot of money on shows that not a lot of people are watching. Yeah, and there's been noise around it. There was the Kim Masters piece in THR. You know, I've done reporting on Amazon and all the various reorganizations that they've done. The sense around Hollywood is that Amazon doesn't quite know what its brand is. I mean, if you look at the stuff that seems to work on the service, it shows like Reacher and Jack Ryan and The Terminalist and The Boys, these sort of broader CBS almost style shows that makes sense for the prime audience. The prime audience is everyone. So I, I just wonder if it isn't just a content strategy problem that Amazon has. Like, it's almost like you want to sit him down and say, Jen Salky, like, just make the hits. You, you, have, a, you have a lane here. That's a very dangerous, as you know, know that's a very dangerous argument because you can't just make this. But you're right that that Amazon has been torn for a while, I think, between this notion of being prestige and being for the masses. And a lot of their early shows, in particular, in the kind of the Roy Price era, were that more prestige niche. Yeah, Fleabag, Maisel. Yeah. yeah, Netflix was the same at that point, right? They were making shows mostly for the coast. And I think Amazon quickly realized or so- somewhat quickly realized, especially at the urging of, of Jeff Bezos, that they should go for the masses. But they've still, they sort of like, Jen Salky came in to run the studio and they were kind of doing both. And je- much like the Amazon customer base's bread and butter, I think, is more middle-of-the-road programming. I think Jen Salky's sweet spot is more middle-of-the-road programming. But they keep spending a bunch of money to work with people like Jonah Nolan or to work with the Russo brothers. Although, you know, Citadel is the type of show that should be a show for the middle, right? It should be a show for a lot of people. It's a big action centerpiece. Yeah, but it went off the rails. I mean, this they should have pulled the plug on that a long time ago and just eaten $100 million and said, you know what, we tried. The Russo brothers are not as advertised, and we're just not going to do this. But they 
trudged along. They had this business vision of a show that could be the plant for spinoffs around the world where you do a, a country-specific spinoff. And it was the perfect classic example of putting the cart before the horse, having the business plan before the creative. And shocker, the creative didn't live up. The stories behind the scenes on that project are, are pretty insane. I got a lot of notes after my story ran last week from people in one way or another involved, appreciative, because it... I, I, there there was this real divide between the creators of the show and the Russo brothers who had brought in the creators of the show to make it. They had two competing versions of the show <laughs> that were being edited simultaneously in competition with each other. That's not great. That's not what you want. But it, it begs the question, like, who's minding this store? Who is overseeing that and allowing it to happen? Well, I think there's a lot of faith put in the Russos because they have a, a good track record on the feature side. I mean, we'll put good in quotes. We They have the Avengers movies, which are Marvel. Then they have the Netflix stuff like Extraction, which is, you know, inarguably a hit. They have a bunch, you know, Red Notice and... Uh, no, they didn't do know. Red Notice. They were... They were um, no. The, What's the other one? The Ryan Gosling spy one. Uh, oh, my God. We've already forgotten it. That's how much impact <laughs> it made. It cost $200 million. It's something, man. Uh, gray man, gray, gray man. man. <laughs> yeah. That's, em- that's embarrassing for us, but also maybe a little embarrassing for them. It's totally indicative. I guarantee you 90% of our listeners couldn't remember the name either. So my point is like, that's, that's a, um, it's a failure of the creatives, but it's also a failure of management to allow this to happen and get so out of control. One of the things that I know a lot of people in the entertainment business were wondering, because you and I and others wrote about sort of the search for Amazon to find the head of its film division. And at the outset, it was believed that that person would report into to Mike Hopkins, who is Jen Salky's boss, who oversees the, the broader video business at Amazon, and that they wanted to go for someone like who had much as Jen Salky was a major player in the TV business when she took the, the Amazon Studios job. They wanted someone who is similarly a big player in the film business to essentially be her partner. And then at a certain point in that process, it became a job that reported into to Jen. And setting aside some of the snobby feelings about like, oh, a TV person shouldn't oversee film. I think there were people wondering, like, what in Jen Salky's track record warrants Amazon giving her more responsibility? Because there haven't been a bunch of hits, especially not ones developed under her tenure. And yet you talk to certain people at Amazon and they say that Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy love her. Well, it's a weird culture there. You know, there's the part of the problem they had with the film job is that it's the Seattle culture at Amazon that is very difficult for people that are weaned in the Hollywood community to adjust to everything from the fact that most people fly coach to the fact that you've got this very strict set of rules that everyone has to live by at the company. And, you know, the the, the film people in particular don't Love that. They ended up getting Courtney Valenti, who's a Warner Brothers executive, who does report to Jen Salky. But I agree with you. That has been an issue, the, the structure at Amazon. And the fact that under Jen Salky, like, it has been sort of chaotic. The reorgs that they've done and certain people having responsibility for certain shows and the creative community not quite knowing who's in charge of what. That's a problem when you're trying to attract and get the most out of the top creators, because you can sign whoever you want. I mean, they signed Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's undeniably a huge talent, 
but they didn't get anything out of her after three years and $60 million. There was a Mr. and Mrs. Smith show that she was going to do with Donald Glover. That didn't work out, but they didn't get anything else out of her. And then they re-upped the deal. And if I'm Andy Jassy and I'm looking over the line items of you know how they're spending their money, I'm looking at that being, wait a second, why did we renew this person's deal when we got nothing out of $60 million in three years? Because of Fleabag. <laughs> right. Fleabag, great. Her star is rising from Indiana Jones. Great. But at some point, you got to do the work and like make a show. The reputation of that company in terms of dealing with them is very poor in in Hollywood um, mm. and, and has been for years. It's just a hard place to do business. I think some of it is the culture clash you talk about. Some of it is that the studio hasn't really defined what its programming vision is. And and some of that, I think, is related to the fact that even though Amazon pushes back on this pretty hard, I think evaluating what is success at that point. Well, that is key. And is I want to talk really about really difficult because at certain places, it's pretty simple, right? Okay, how you measure it, a little challenging, but like, okay, for Netflix, if they are adding subscribers and people are spending more time watching Netflix, that is a success. If you're Disney and you have a movie, it's got to sell tickets and then you want people to stream it or you want people to rent it, all of those things. And you can do that like Disney with a lot of these other companies. Everyone has slightly different versions. But individual projects and studios, you can tell if they're succeeding or not. But at Amazon, because it is tied to this notion of Prime and of people shopping on Amazon, you're, even, you're another step removed from being able to assess the performance of individual projects. And so you get to this point where you can look at the charts that we have from Nielsen or other places, and it seems pretty obvious that these shows, other than a few, Boys, Terminal List, some of the, Jack Ryan, some of the ones you mentioned, other than those, a lot of these big swings are not working. And they can claim, well, it's working according to like what we want, but nobody but we fucking don't know. knows what that is. That's part of the shit they get around town is that it's so opaque you know them amazon and apple are the two that provide almost no data on who is watching what or what even the success metrics are for them and i think that's part of the problem reputation wise is that people don't know because it's a danger you know we in the media we have a tendency to evaluate these companies based on what the traditional metrics of success are and if the metric of success is toilet paper purchase conversion and we don't see how much toilet paper is being bought by prime customers who engage with jack ryan then we are not privy to what amazon considers a success so all we have to look at are the external data and their decisions i mean we joke about citadel and how awful the numbers are they renewed it so clearly they're seeing something or it's you know it was baked into the original deal or it was just a face-saving maneuver. We got to renew this just so we don't look like a failure. Or maybe it is doing what it's supposed to do. You know, they, we joke about how it's huge in India because there's some data that shows it's big in India, which is probably thanks to Priyanka Chopra. But maybe Citadel is helping Amazon make inroads in the retail business in India. We just don't know. And it just complicates the entire process because I think creators want to know. Yeah, I think with as it pertains to Citadel, my understanding is that it wasn't baked into the deal that there would be a season two. 
And I think it's probably a combo you talked about. One is that this was like Jen Salky's idea. She doesn't want to admit that this thing is a total <laughs> failure. And she can now say, well, I've got Joe Russo on board to direct all the second season. It's going to be great. And, and this is the thing with a lot of these Amazon projects, like the numbers don't make them absolute disasters if you don't think about how much they cost, right? right. They are modest successes in terms of the audience. And sure, it's it's fine to do, maybe they're playing the long game in India and it's bringing in people who will then shop on Prime. India is a pretty low ARPU market. I mean, you don't get a lot of yes. money per customer. I know, huge in India is basically the new, I have a girlfriend in Canada. But then you factor in the cost and that's where it gets crazy. Like they have they have all these shows that do fine you know, and it's it's tough. One of the challenges with the Nielsen numbers is like it sort of helps Netflix because of the way that they release shows. But you can tell if a show is successful if it sticks around in the top ten, right? Like Ted Lasso on Apple is a hit because it's in oh, the top yeah. ten. I mean, every it's a hit. week, and for a service that doesn't have that many subscribers, or The Mandalorian, even if it's not what it was, is still in the top ten every week. That's a hit. If you're a show that shows up on one chart for a week, you probably don't have a huge audience. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. The fact that further complicates things is, yes, we know the prime subscriber numbers, but we don't have a lot of reliable data on the number of prime subscribers who actually engage with prime video content. And that's a huge problem when you're in the creative community. You want to know, oh, yeah, they're a huge platform. But are people actually going to this platform to watch shows? And that's still, you know, 10, 12 years into the content initiative at Amazon Studios, we still don't have a lot of information about that. And that could be part of the problem here is that they're just not getting people to even consider watching shows on the platform. Well, when you consider how big the prime customer base is, you would think that their viewer base would be bigger, right? Because the prime customer base, I think, is bigger than anything but maybe Netflix. Oh, it's bigger than Netflix in the US. It's almost double Netflix. If they have 150 million prime customers in the US, Netflix is at what, 75 million in the US? Yeah, I was thinking globally. But yes, I hear you. And you know, that was, I think, part of the reason why they got football because they knew that Thursday Night Football would actually engage people and make it must-see that you have to go to Prime to watch the NFL because you love the NFL. And that football deal 
is a sign, you know, I think for a while when when Amazon and Apple came into to Hollywood, people were wondering if they just sort of wake up one day and give up. It's clear that Amazon sees value in it, right? They've made long term commitments for rights to football to other things. They're not just going to wake up tomorrow and shut down the studio. I heard from people this week after you did your story about Andy Jesse, I got texts from people saying, oh, shit, is this the end? Like, is it Amazon just going to decide tomorrow that, oh, you know, that was fun. It was more of Jeff Bezos' thing. So he and Lauren Sanchez could go to parties. We're a serious company. We're not going to do this anymore. And just kind of like pull up stakes and leave. I don't think that is going to happen. They're going to probably get a lot more scrutiny right now on what they are doing and what they're spending, especially on these shows that don't have any real reason for existing. So they I mean, they also uh, did that this big MGM deal that I think they very quickly realized they overpaid for dollars. And through that, they got a bunch of movies that nobody's going to see. The people who ran the film business at MGM, Mike DeLuke and Tam Abdi, who now run the movie studio at Warner Brothers, they did a great job of making talent and agents happy because they gave filmmakers a lot of good money to make their projects. But basically nothing from their slate has worked. No, the DeLuca movies at MGM were, for the most part, turds, financially speaking. You know, he got a Paul Thomas Anderson movie out of it. He got, you know, the, the Gucci movie did a little, made a little noise, but they didn't make money. What they did was they got, you know, some would call a sucker. Others would say an interested party to look at the studio and say, ooh, maybe we should buy this. And they did. But now what is the question? What are they going to do with that? And uh, we haven't had a lot of signals about what Amazon is going to do with MGM. They're now integrating it. They're saying they're going to release Movies and theaters first. They did with Air, which I think was a, a modest success in theaters. But but that's another example. I mean, that movie cost so, or they paid, I should say, they so paid, much money. Right. They paid a lot more than it cost. So it was great for Ben and Matt. But, you know, paying $130 million for a movie that costs a lot less to make is a windfall for those guys. Good for them. But I think an example of Amazon kind of writing a check that may not have been justified. So that's the question I have. You know, what is this new era going to mean for Amazon? I mean, I think that they have already started cutting back. I hear it from people that stuff that would have been a no-brainer a year ago is now being scrutinized. Um, they're not buying as many outside projects. They are cutting back. But do you think the average consumer is going to notice that? Or is it just, you know, are, are they getting, are they using the data, getting smarter, and they're just going to do stuff that has the biggest chance of success? I think it's going to be like with all these companies where the average consumer probably won't notice it all that much because there's been so much television out there that even if the number of shows goes down, which I'm not sure it will, but let's say it goes down by 20%. I don't think people feel that. It would need to go down like 50% for someone to really feel it. And the overall goal here and something that doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to Amazon is that they really want to be the portal through which all streaming television is viewed. I mean, that is the goal at Amazon. It's the goal at Apple. They see the Hollywood content as being another retail opportunity. And if they can create an interface through Prime Video that becomes not just a compelling place for original shows and the MGM movies, but someplace where all the other services feel they need to be in order to reach customers, then you have a one-stop shop. And ultimately, if all these other 
services see value in selling their content through Amazon, that is a win for Amazon because it will be the first thing you open when you think, I'd like to watch television tonight. I was amazed in reporting the story. I tried to to actually get good numbers for what they spend, don't spend. And so they say that they're spending on Prime Video as it pertains to you know originals licensing and sports is about seven billion. But their media spending is seventeen. Now that includes music, but that also means a huge portion of that, and this is connecting to your point, is they do about as much business, if not more business selling other people's channels and doing transactional rentals and purchases of movies as they do the, you know, the traditional streaming business. They do billions of dollars every year in that. So is Jen Salky safe? Do you think after all of this stuff has come out about her spending and the lack of return on some of these investments, you know, obviously you start to look at the executives in charge there. She's been there, what, five, seven years now? Do you think Andy Jassy might make a change? I've heard conflicting reports. Explain the conflicting reports. Well, first of all, there's been a lot of chatter over the past couple of years about conflict between Jen Salky and her boss, Mike Hopkins, which sure. Amazon yes, has done I've its best that. to dispel. And anytime I would bring that up with people, they, they, they wouldn't necessarily dismiss the idea that Jen and Mike don't always see eye to eye, but they would say, oh, but Andy and, and Bezos really like her. Now, that seems to continue to be the case. At the same time, I have spoken with a couple of people who said that they would be shocked if she had a job in a year. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Lucas, I've asked you to stay because our guy, producer Craig, is out. He is uh, on his honeymoon. He had a great wedding this past weekend. It was very nice. A little awkward when he professed his love for Ana de Armas out on the altar, but uh, <laughs> it went off without a hitch. Who was the, uh, the, the drunkest ringer employee? I am not going to out the guilty here. We will not be doing a draft of the drunkest ringer employee at Craig's wedding. Uh, but Craig is out this week. You are here. And I want to talk about Barbie. I went to the Barbie premiere last night. It is quite the spectacle. Uh, I will leave it to the critics to say whether it's good or bad. But I was struck by how Mattel allowed this to happen. It is taking the Barbie IP and just running with it. I mean, there is there is an F-bomb in the movie. Someone says motherfucker. It's bleep. But there, there are boob jokes. There is a joke about the creator of Mattel uh, having tax evasion problems. The whole villain of the movie is like the patriarchy. And it spends a lot of time sort of almost like apologizing for the fact that this is a Barbie movie. Watching it, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe Mattel allowed them to do this, allowed Greta Gerwig and Warner Brothers to do this. Yeah, I mean, they are not desperate, but it's the centerpiece, I would say, of this whole strategy, which my colleagues have written about, the New Yorker ran a piece about, to mine the entire library. There was that period in time where everyone just wanted to be like Disney and create all these universes and prove their IP companies because they then could sell for billions of dollars. And you have to be a little bit flexible. You say you can't believe it, I, I acknowledge that there's real risk there. Barbie is the single most valuable property that Mattel has. But I, for one, love that they were willing to take a oh, filmmaker. Not, I love it, too. Like, I, I actually think, ultimately, it's going to be successful as a strategy for them. It just, watching it, I was just struck by how much some of these jokes must have made these executives cringe 
when they're literally making fun of themselves. Mattel is a character in the movie as this evil toy company. Does the feminist nature of it and Greta Gerwig, who has mostly made movies, I would say, for adults, do you think that that in any way, because I haven't seen it yet, does that limit the audience for it? I think some will be turned off. I mean, first of all, it's it's the most bizarre thing in that it is a, it's really not for kids. Like, it's yeah, about that's what Barbie. I mean. I mean, you can take kids to it, but it's really not made for kids. It's mostly made for adults. And there is a an undertone of feminist down with the patriarchy that exudes through the entire movie. And I've heard that they tone that down a little bit, but uh, that may turn off some of the Fox News crowd who just wants to see a Barbie movie of a you know blonde girl looking pretty and driving her pink car. But it's a more entertaining, better movie because Greta Gerwig made it. I mean, it is definitely her movie. And that's actually my prediction today. The tracking on Barbie continues to spike. They are the marketing is fantastic and they are doing a great job of mobilizing Barbie as this icon. And the question has been, which is going to win Barbie or Oppenheimer? I actually am going to go further. I think Barbie is going to outgross the opening weekend of Mission Impossible, which opens on the Wednesday before Barbie. That is a five day Mission Impossible opening. I think Barbie as a three day opening the following weekend is going to beat. Mission Impossible. That's big. I thought I wasn't sure where you were going with the prediction because I don't think it's really a debate whether it's going to beat Oppenheimer. It's going to crush. No, Oppenheimer. no, no. It's doubling. I mean, the, the the Barbie tracking right now is at like ninety something, and the Oppenheimer tracking is mid forties. There's no question about Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer might have longer legs if it's good and people see it in IMAX and you know go three times, but that's not a question. The Mission Impossible thing, I think people may be overestimating the Mission Impossible audience given the Top Gun Halo. I think that that it's going to be big. It'll definitely be the biggest of the Mission Impossible series. And they're doing some shady things like opening it way early overseas. And like they're going to put that into the number for the opening weekend, which not great. But if Barbie's opening weekend beats the Mission Impossible five day, that will be a huge deal. It just feels like one of those movies where every week you can push, revise the numbers up. It's not Super Mario Brothers level, but... That 93 is definitely going to be 100 by the time it opens. And who knows? It could even get to 110, 120. Yeah, it'll be fascinating when the reviews hit because I have no idea what the critics are going to do with this movie. It is so much better and more incisive than you would expect a Barbie movie to be. Yet it's also silly. And there are elements that are really dumb. And Gosling is like on Mars. He's kind of in a different movie, but he's also doing like the perfect version of Ken. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see how people respond to this. Uh, From a business perspective, though, this is definitely the most interesting movie of the summer because it is a huge swing by Mattel. And I think this is going to pay off. And I actually think, you know, they have grand designs on doing 10, 20 different Mattel toy adaptations. And what this movie is going to do is it's going to signal to other filmmakers that they should be attached to Mattel projects because they will be allowed to do something interesting. And if one or two of those other projects actually turn into something, then Barbie will be worthwhile, even if it's not a huge hit, which I think it will be. Yeah. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank our producer, editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.